You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD. Hello and welcome to uh, the latest series of Digital Conversations, which is organised by the Office of the Chief Economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. We're looking at the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the global economy. Today, we're going to try to work out the best approaches to fiscal policy and the future of the social contract in the post-COVID-19 world. Every government, or virtually every government in the world, is faced with an impossible dilemma. If the economy opens too early, the risk of COVID-19 spread is high. If the economy stays shut, no industries or businesses will be able to survive for that long. So far, public finances have been focused on preserving economies that were put into induced comas. But at what price? Well, we know a very, very high price. How will we pay for this crisis? What does the future of public finance look like in the world dealing with COVID-19? And will this crisis change the relationships between the individual and the state forever? Those are some of the questions we'll be looking at today. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm the EBRD's Managing Director for Communications. And today we have a great lineup of distinguished guests. We have uh, Willem Voiter, is the former Citibank Chief Economist and member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. He's also a former EBRD Chief Economist, by the way, as well. He was awarded the CBE in 2000. Uh, Martin Wolfe is Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. And uh, the EBRD Chief Economist is with us, Beata Javorczyk, also Professor of Economics at Oxford. This event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page, as well as via Zoom. Uh, for Facebook Live viewers, you can post your questions in the comments. Uh, before we start our discussion, a few pointers for those of you joining us on uh, Zoom. Please make sure you mute yourself. Please keep your video off. You can put questions to the panel in the chat box and we'll pick them up. Please introduce yourself, by the way, when you post your question in that chat box. We're going to take questions more or less in the last half hour or so of our conversation. So between 4 o'clock and 4.30 London time. Uh, in about 60 minutes or so from now. From the very early on in this pandemic, of course, the majority of countries who could afford it were announcing astonishing rescue packages, figures that we would never have dreamt of in the past. In the UK, the substantial package of fiscal measures in response to the coronavirus is estimated, certainly in May anyway, and it's grown substantially since that, was estimated around 123 billion pounds. IMF estimates suggest the response in other G7 economies has typically been even larger. In the United States, a support package of $3 trillion, trillion we're talking about, by the way, you didn't mishear me, in new stimulus spending was approved by US Democrats just last month. These are all staggering numbers, but the question remains, how do we pay for all of this? Those are just a few of the things that spring to mind. There's clearly a great deal more we're going to discuss uh, in the next few minutes. Uh, our guests uh, are with us, and uh, maybe we should start by their thoughts on their, their main thoughts, three headlines perhaps, on the future of spending and how it will change our social contract. Martin, let me start with you. How do you see this in headline two? All right, well, um, first headline. Um, this was not an unexpected shock long predicted, but a surprise when it happened. It turned out to be a spectacular scale, global. We are still at early stage. And uh, following basically WHO recommendations and those of other epidemi epidemiologists, governments did something completely unprecedented across large parts of the world, and particularly in the developed countries, they closed down their economies. Uh, and as a result, we have experienced in the second quarter in the West and obviously in the first quarter in China, um, 
simply stupendous declines in economic activity. Um, quarter on quarter, we don't know yet the scale of it, but 20% down, 25% down, possibly more. So that's the first thing. Governments not only are back, they're back in an enormous way, but they are back doing something to protect the health of their population, um, which has never happened before. Second, to cushion the blow, they have, in my view, absolutely rightly, in conjunction with central banks, again, absolutely rightly, these are the central organs of the state as insurer and as manager of crises like this. This is what the state is for. They have cushioned the blow in many different ways. Uh, uh, they have supported unemployed people. They have supported businesses. Uh, large businesses, small businesses, they've supported financial markets, domestic, and in the case of the Fed, really global. It's been a staggering effort, makes what was done after the financial crisis look really quite trivial. This is, certainly for the UK case, uh, this is incomparable to the sort of thing they did in the Second World War. And as a result, uh, and I think they've been absolutely right to do this, and they have to continue to do this until the economy's and change the form of what they've done, but continue to do as the economies heal and recover, a subject we can discuss, which will not be easy because the pandemic might return. But then the third uh, point is at some point, they're gonna have to think, uh, well, how do they manage themselves as the crisis passes? I believe it is very important not to tighten fiscal and monetary policy too soon. We don't want a weak and halting recovery. We want a strong and vigorous recovery. We want the private sector to think there's support for it. But in the end, uh, this will be, need to be paid for. Fortunately, the debt is incredibly cheap. Real interest rates are unbelievably low. In my view, governments need to borrow very long at these very easy terms. That will at least park the debt for a long, long time, but the big structural deficits will have to be closed at some point, and they will be a legacy from this, which will probably be quite big, and some of the burden, much of the burden of that adjustment will fall off on the shoulders of the better off citizens, who also, on the whole, are the ones most, least adversely affected by the crisis, and I think that will be just and right. So those are my three big points. Thank you very much, Martin. We'll dissect those uh, in the next hour. Willem, let me turn to you. Uh, thank you. It's really a pleasure uh, to uh, be in EBRD land again. And I thank you for inviting me. Um, fiscal policy traditionally has three dimensions. Uh, um, stabilization policy, when the economy is facing deficient or indeed excessive aggregate demand, and we have had, of course, a massive uh, negative aggregate demand shock, which exceeded the also quite substantial negative supply shock represented by uh, this crisis. The initial non-Keynesian phase had an important supply side dimension. But then uh, we have the um, distributional role of government, of fiscal policy, and C, we have the efficiency well, um, the, the provision of public goods and services, internalization of um, externalities, provision of merit goods, the fiscal dimension of nudging and all that. Well, 
it is my view that governments, after, as Martin pointed out, closing down much of their economies, have rightly, wherever they could, in the advanced economies, uh, blown the lid off the stabilization component. It's in the joint use monetary policy. Actually, when I talk fiscal policy here, I consolidate the central bank in this. The central bank is just the liquid window of the treasury, right? The treasury is the beneficial owner. So let's not pretend that um, there is material central bank independence in any of this. Um, uh, I do believe that following the acute phase of, uh, of this uh, crisis, there will be greater emphasis than uh, in the early aspects of phase of the crisis and before the crisis to distributional uh, considerations. We're going to see uh, more uh, progressive taxation. We're going to see, I think, uh, attempts to impose material wealth taxes. And uh, all this um, goes on top of the additional taxation that will be required to deal with the overhang of the massive counter-cyclical fiscal stimulus and B, um, to pay for the permanent increase in the share of government spending and GDP, which I see in many uh, advanced economies, uh, uh, with the possible exception of France, which already spends 56% of its GDP in the public sector. But I do think that they're going to lose sight completely of the efficiency, the allocative role of, uh, of government, because the distributional and the stabilization uh, legacy are going to uh, dominate. Um, all these uh, stories about aggressive use of uh, monetary fiscal policy uh, in an unprecedented manner, right? Um, we're talking um, in the UK uh, currently already um, public spending at 8.6% of 2019 GDP for 2020 thus far. And um, uh, forecasts that I consider quite reliable uh, have a public uh, the, the deficit increase as a share of 2019 GDP uh, by the end of the year, early next year, reaching uh, close to 16, one six percent of GDP. Only uh, the uh, US, uh, which will be 20% of GDP plus, in some estimates, 24% of GDP plus, will beat um, uh, the UK in its endeavor to sustain aggregate demand. But um, you know, these lasting consequences uh, of uh, um, increase in the size of the public sector, more social democratic, anti-capitalist political sentiment of actions, but higher public spending that's only really for the advanced economies. Emerging markets are facing this crisis with a much restricted set of tools, uh, both monetary and, and fiscal. So I see the drag on activity uh, be much more long-lasting there. And um, indeed, 
um, evolving in a way that makes serious financial crises, uh, including the uh, private debt and also uh, public debt, uh, virtually inevitable in many emerging markets. So we're not out of the woods yet, uh, even in the advanced economies, we haven't begun to enter the woods in many emerging markets. I'll stop here. Willem, thank you very much. We'll come back uh, on many of those issues as well. Beata. So three headlines. First, state-owned enterprises. SOEs tend to offer stable employment at relatively modest wages. And survey data show that people who are more risk averse are much more likely to work at SOEs, even taking into account their age, gender, education. And the stability of employment offered by SOEs became much more valuable during the crisis. So I expect that in many countries where the EBRD is active, the public will become more enthusiastic about having SOEs. And because we are not out of the woods yet with the crisis, um, we will see many nationalizations, the state taking equity stakes in firms. I think it, this increased public support for state-owned enterprises will make it much more difficult to privatize and to exit. Um, so the state is striking back and it's likely to remain large in the years to come. Second, um, as governments emerge very indebted, it will be irresistible to start taxing tech companies. Now, of course, um, the US gets very upset when Europeans talk about it, but you know, the trade relationships between the US and the EU are not perfect. Um, the, EU, the US is still entitled to impose some tariffs in the aftermath of the Airbus judgment by the WTO. Europe is waiting for judgment on Boeing, which will happen mm -hmm. in September. So if there will be a possibility of a trade conflict, Europe actually may say, well, we don't care. We will impose taxes on tech companies. Um, and third, turning to emerging markets, um, I think we will need to deal with debt crises in emerging markets. There will need to be some sort of debt resolution, debt forgiveness. This will be complicated by, the, uh, by China being one of the key creditors. But this will also mean that the appetite for giving aid to developing countries will be much smaller in the rich world. Mm -hmm. And that may, again, have an impact on the long-term growth trajectory there. Thank you. Beato, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, all three of you, for your first round of interventions. You know, it's all quite interesting, isn't it? It, um, it does remind me a bit, actually, of sort of 1946 Britain and the, the thought then that people were saying we're all socialists now because we're in the arena of sort of political economy here. And it does strike me that a lot of populations are very happy with the idea of a bigger state. So does that seem right to you, Martin? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think, I think that's, my impression is that that's a consensus uh, um, uh, among the three of us um, that the state is back. Um, I think there are um, two aspects of this. I think it was coming back anyway. I've just written about a piece about that, which appeared on Monday, which is mm -hmm. 
started off a, a series we've been running on the new social contract. And it seemed to me that we had this episode, which I call the years of 40, almost 40 years of free market globalization, the Reagan-Thatcher period, whatever you like, you could call it the Dong Reagan-Thatcher period, when the dominant watchwords were economic integration, free markets, privatization, um, and of course the EBRD was a product of that. It was bringing all these great virtues to the former communist countries. That was all part of this confidence, this thing. Um, but the simple truth is that with the rise of China, even more the financial crisis and the um, aftermath of the financial crisis and the, um, the, the anger and resentment building up in important parts of our society for a long time, again catalyzed by the financial crisis uh, in significant ways and the perceived injustice of the way it was handling, the world got friendly to populist leaders. Who, and I've, the populists, of course, are playing with salvation and scapegoats. That's their thing. And so we already had a period when, you know, the idea of the free market globalization paradigm as the dominant paradigm of politics. I'm just going to focus on the Western world. Could be more broader, but there's a limited time. I think it had gone. It had gone. We were clearly in a transition period and COVID-19 has just killed it. Uh, I think historians of the future will say this was the moment at which the states came back big time. And the question that Willem rightly raised is what does that mean in detail? And what is this new period going to look like? Well, it's certainly not going to look like the 50s and 60s because as I again argue that thing, we're not going to go back to that. And it's quite possible, indeed probable, it'll be an appalling mess from all sorts of points of view. But we couldn't stay where we were. Our societies were demonstrably falling apart in the US and UK, particularly, uh, but not only there. Uh, something new had to arrive. This crisis has, I think, brought it to us. And we must discuss what that's going to look like and how to make it as good as it possibly can be. Because there were a lot of things that we messed up. I mean, I think a lot of things that we did have to fix and that has now become more obvious as a result of the crisis. And all of this will be about our relationship, relationship between the society and the economy and the state in a new world with a new sense of what that should be. And I think it'll be a big set of fights. All right, let's come back to the fiscal implications of that because clearly it's very interesting from that side in a second. But Willem uh, Martin is you know, that does sound very plausible, doesn't it? In effect, what we've seen now is a fast forwarding of something that was happening anywhere in terms of trend. Yes, I, I, fully, I fully agree with that. Uh, not everywhere in the world, but certainly in some of the leading Western uh, countries, uh, including specifically the US and the UK, um, the legitimacy of the economic system and the allocation of resources, distribution of wealth and income was being questioned and would have been questioned in a much more aggressive way. You know, and sort of it helps in a way that the extremely high income 
and wealth, uh, both at a personal level and at a corporate level, the tech companies that Beata mentioned, are not capital income or labor income in the economic sense of the word. These are pure economic rents. Yes. No returns to genius, luck, and monopoly power, right? They can be taxed severely, and they will be, I think, without creating material disincentive effects for saving capital accumulation or work. And I think we're going to see much more aggressive moves. Um, this is assuming that in the US, uh, Trump does not get reelected, or um, uh, to um, uh, redistribute income and uh, increase the size of public standing in GDP um, uh, by increasing spending on health, education, uh, welfare, and all that. And indeed, yes, uh, state-owned enterprises um, or uh, private enterprises with a growing state-owned equity component, which has the option of turning to state-owned enterprise, are going to be a much larger part of the uh, economic orchestra than they have been thus far. Uh, one, one point though, um, in, again, the US is uh, somewhat perverse in the sense that state and local governments are seriously fiscally constrained and have actually been shedding jobs in many states. It's the federal government that has the deep pockets, the um, well, not unconstrained, but the much less severely constrained capacity to tax, and of course, the capacity to print, which uh, in a world of um, uh, liquidity traps and uh, effective lower bound um, being a binding constraint in interest rates is a, a, is a big plus and gives the federal, the central governments uh, a much greater scope for uh, aggressive interventions. Thank you, Vidal. It's quite interesting, Beata, isn't it? Because uh, Western nations and Western economic thought has spent a lot of time telling many countries uh, not in the Western arena that it's time to move away from SOEs, from state-owned enterprises, from the role of the state to encourage, uh, you know, as Martin said, the EBRD was set up to encourage private enterprise in many countries. Uh, well, now that, you know, again, that philosophy that was under strain anyway, that advice was, was under strain, has clearly suffered a, a severe revert. That's true. But at the same time, there are good reasons, right, why state ownership may not be optimal. In many of the countries where we operate, you know, the governments are not a model of um, high, high quality institutions. And SOEs offer opportunities to give jobs to friends. State-owned banks may be used in close, closely fought elections to pump credit to localities uh, where you know the, the race is particularly fierce. So, you know there are good reasons why state ownership is not optimal. But you know our attitude towards state ownership also shows that this state striking back it's actually quite unexpected. If you go back to 2001, when China was admitted in the, the World Trade Organization, back then nobody worried about state aid 
and SOEs being a large drug chunk of the economy because it was the end of history. Everybody believed that China would follow the path of other emerging markets and um, the SOE sector would shrink. Now, um, this is an issue and this is one of the uh, deficiencies of the WTO at the moment. But I wonder um, whether there are other reasons why we would have seen increased role of the state even in the absence of the pandemic. I think climate change is, is a big reason, right? For the past 20 years, we have believed that companies would do their part on the green front that hasn't um, yielded the expected results and we are running out of time. So the state needs to step in. Okay, let's move on from that then to this question of who pays. Martin, where should the fiscal burden fall? Um, I think Willem has already um, uh, laid it out. I think also, I, I think Beatus made a point which sort of implicit what I said but added one which is incredibly important. Um, I believe, I've been in the middle of writing a book on this, that a more expansive role for the state in our societies and economies, and I'm again talking, focusing on the developed countries, but of course it has implications more broadly, was on its way. Um, and because of the, you know, remember Trump got elected on, a, on actually doing an awful lot of spending, which he didn't do, which I think was uh, a mistake. And then there's the climate issue, which indeed is certainly will require a lot more spending and state inter intervention. Now, and the obvious question is how do we pay for it? Well, mm. uh, if we look at things at the moment, I suppose we could say there are two classes of people who are spending it. First of all, the people who I think, this may be a misquote, but I think Keynes once called for the euthanasia of the rentier, <laughs> by which he meant people who, who held bonds. And I, every day I get a wine, uh, often many wines from people representing the bond-owning class. Willem wrote for them for a long time, remember, when he went to City, complaining about the fact that the returns on bonds are so miserable. And they're right, uh, this class of people, um, ultimately people who own pension funds and all the rest of it, are paying. They are paying now uh, because they are financing the government at zero or negative real returns. And I think that's absolutely terrific, but they are an important class of people who are paying already. And I hope they will continue to pay because otherwise we're gonna have a problem. Uh, but it's important to note that and stress that uh, the terms on which people are able to lend to government now, I mean, in many countries, um, they have to pay the government to get take their money. That's pretty striking, isn't it? Uh, so that's the first class. And they're obviously, on balance, overwhelmingly relatively prosperous people, though not the richest, important, uh, uh, um, upper middle class, I suppose, broadly defined, these are the, must be the people who are paying for most of that. Then, uh, to the extent that just borrowing money at zero real rates won't be enough, and I agree with Willem, there are going to be structural overhangs of this, and we can't go on borrowing like this forever. The MMT idea that money is a free lunch is obviously wrong. Um, 
So at some point, uh, we're going to have to handle what that part of the def deficit that will not be fixed by just being able to borrow very, very cheaply. And that will be more serious the more slowly we grow. And again, I think it's very important. It is probable in my mind, and we're already there, that we will, our economies in the developed world will grow relatively slowly. There are all sorts of reasons, demographic, technological, um, why that is likely to be the case. So, assume growth is slow, real terms. Real interest rates are even slower than we, lower than our growth rates. I think that will last, probably. Uh, we will remain in that sort of world. I hope that's the case, it'll make it much easier. And if we borrow long-term, that will help. Uh, but there will have to be some final group of people who pay the taxes. Well, I follow the simple policy. We are not going to be able to cut spending if we don't want a civil war. And I'm not in favor of civil wars. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can't do what we did after the financial crisis again, certainly not in Britain. And I don't think in America either, uh, but we'll see. So that means you'll have to raise taxes. And the first law of taxation is like the first law of being a bank robber, as Willie Sutton said. Um, if you want to raise taxes, you have to raise taxes on people who have the money. And it's perfectly obvious who the people are who have the money, the very rich, the, the tech monopolists. There are huge evidence of pervasive monopolization in important parts of our economy. Uh, so wealth taxes, a massive closure of corporate loopholes, which are completely scandalous. Uh, I mean, completely scandalous, scandalous. Uh, will happen and everybody will be very, I think will happen. And if they don't happen, then we're going to be in terrible trouble. It's perfectly obvious who's going to pay. Um, and that's what happened in the middle of the 20th century in comparably extreme crisis. And that's where we're going to go back to. And COVID-19 has accelerated this dramatically and will make it much bigger, I think. But it hasn't changed what I have long felt is the general direction of where we're going. What about a shift, though, Martin, just before I come to the others, in uh, the generations who pay? And by that, I mean, you know, in some countries, there's certainly been a redistribution where younger generations have been paying for older generations. Do you think that stops, that turns into a more neutral setting, or, or actually older generations are going to be paying more for younger generations? Well, if we tax, if I'm right that we tax wealth, uh, well, Willem has mentioned, and I agree with him, we tax wealth, we tax, uh, we're taxing savers, I've already mentioned that, uh, or people who hold large quantities of liquid safe assets. Uh, uh, we will tax corporations um, uh, uh, one way or another, uh, at least retained earnings of corporations. This will automatically fall on relatively rich old people. Uh, yeah. And that seems to me, because they own, mm -hmm. as you know, the concentration yeah. of wealth ownership is very extreme in our societies, and it's owned predominantly by relatively elderly rich people. Like, you know, I sort of cling on by my fingernails to this group. Willem, of course, having worked for City is well into it. Uh, and we will all pay more taxes. And I personally think this is absolutely right. Uh, we should. Uh, so it won't be the older, lots of very poor old people, very poor old people in Western societies. They shouldn't be paying. Uh, and there are some immensely rich young people. They should be paying. Uh, you know, a tech trillionaire or whatever it is in 
in his or her thirties should pay. But yes, you you tax where the money is, and we have most of the money. Martin, thank you, Willem. So, uh, who pays? Uh, which generations? Where would you where would you have the fiscal burden fall? You know, you talk about a, a wealth uh, sort of focus. Uh, that means presumably wealth taxes. Uh, uh, yes, indeed. But I want to point out that um, apart from who pays, uh, the question of how much there is to pay is, is, is crucial. We've focused so far mostly on the exceedingly low uh, risk-free real interest rates on, on public debt instruments and others. Uh, that's the R in the R minus G equation. I'm afraid that um, uh, we are going to see, most likely, in most countries, a decrease, sustained decrease in the growth rate of potential output. But some deglobalization, which is at the origin of a lot of the slowdown, um, is a rational economic response to COVID-19 and the odds of a recurrence, right? Uh, less work-related travel, um, uh, more diversified supply chains. There's an element of redundancy built in for security reasons. Uh, but also, I think, uh, we're going to see uh, more tariffs, non-tariff barriers to trade, um, less FDI, less cross-border migration for the near future. So um, it won't all be uh, sort of eaten away by extraordinarily low interest rates. Um, a wealth tax, I think, is um, a serious wealth tax, not the Mickey Mouse uh, selective wealth taxes that some countries have. It's uh, necessary uh, to resolve the uh, debt overhang in an orderly manner. And um, uh, I, uh, whether this is going to be a tax on corporate wealth or on household wealth is to me largely a matter of where is it easier to collect. Um, I think we're probably going to need both. Uh, but the key thing is uh, that we are serious uh, about uh, ending and closing the uh, continuum of loopholes that we've created. So all income and wealth should be taxed according to the same schedule. You know, whether all asset income, all wealth income, dividends, interest rates, capital gains, because the one can be transformed into the other effortlessly. But also, I think it is quite trivial, especially in, in uh, small unincorporated enterprises, to turn labor income into capital income, vice versa. So all income taxed at the same progressive rate and then high wealth taxed quite aggressively. That's going to be part of the new normal. Whether it will be enough um, depends on um, whether the real interest rate stays as low as it is and whether the reduction in the growth rate of potential output uh, remains modest or more severe. It's an interesting, interesting point. And Beata, I mean, that, you know, there's a philosophical question here, isn't it? The sort of things that have been outlined are absolute anathema, or were once anathema, to some governments which came to power believing actually in less state, not more, um, certainly not more taxation. 
Well, as we have seen, politicians are often these days conviction-free and flexible <laughs> in their views. So I agree with Willem and Martin in terms of where we will see taxation. I also think we will see carbon taxes going up in Europe, um, mm. carbon adjusted ta adjustment tax collected at the border, right? This will be quite appealing because we will be taxing foreigners. Um, I think we will go after tax havens. And you know, it would be very appealing to go after multinationals, but this will be hard because it will be hard to get an agreement from the US and there will be countries that will be desperate for FDI inflows and they will not want to play along and they will be offering uh, loopholes and um, tax holidays and so on. And I think there will be yet another form of taxation of older generation. I think we will see increases in pension age. And, mm -hmm. and that, in a sense, is a way of extracting money from, from older people who are perhaps not very well off. Absolutely. Can I add one? Yes, Martin. Yeah, I mean, we haven't talked about the other possible uh, way of taxing older people, and it is very familiar for any one of my generation, and which I think is villains are too, which is inflation. Hmm. Uh, so if if the the orderly mechanisms we talk about don't work then over some time period, which is unpredictable, but not impossible to imagine, um, that would seem to me not in any way certain, but highly probable, particularly if Willem is right, that the R minus G rate relationship is going to be adverse or close to being adverse. I'm a little more optimistic than he is, but he might be right. But if that's what's going to happen, then I would have thought inflation, given that we're clearly going to increase public debt ratios by what 20 30 percentage points good at least at the end of this inflation becomes perfectly plausible and that's another way of taxing a certain class of wealth holder and i remember that very well from my childhood lots of middle-aged people when i was in my teens had their pensions destroyed because they were all fixed in nominal value we won't have the same situation but inflation is of course a possibility Actually, that, let's, go, let's just go back to the, two, the other two, actually, on that. So, Willem, inflating the way out of the crisis uh, or, or debt in some way. Um, yeah, I think, actually, in many emerging markets, we are likely to see uh, a significant uh, in inflation tax. Um, uh, you just have to look at uh, the ability to raise taxes to cut spending and um, the fact that uh, they have uh, foreign currency denominated debt to also and uh, non-reserve global reserve currency they're going to end up um, having a serious inflation tax on um, on, uh, on, uh, on nominal on nominal financial assets in the west it's certainly a possibility, but we first have to get to the point that we can generate inflation. Uh, the Japanese have been trying to generate inflation for the last 20 years unsuccessfully. Their uh, gross um, uh, uh, general government to debt ratio 
will probably be 100% by the time this is over. The central bank balance sheet is more than 100% of, of, of GDP. So I actually would favor uh, the kind of capital levy that an unanticipated inflation tax um, uh, could represent. But um, I uh, believe you're going to need very aggressive uh, demand stimulus to get us out of liquidity trap territory and into uh, uh, equilibrium where additional fiscal stimulus and monetary issuance is translated into material inflation. Um, I haven't seen any evidence of this happening yet in any of the advanced economies. All right, so Beata, I know you want to jump in here as well. Um, I, apart from the challenge of creating inflation, I think it will be very appealing, right, to inflate away part of the debt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, such proposals were already floated after the financial crisis. And I think the public may not be against it because large proportion of the population has not lived through significant inflation. And I think what we know from surveys is that if you experience moderate inflation, the memory goes away very quickly. It's only if you experienced hyperinflation in your life, the memory stays with you uh, forever, right? Mm. So in emerging markets where people have gone through hyperinflation, there will be resilience to that, the resistance to that. But in developed world, probably not. It's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, the danger is you start with what you think is moderate inflation, but you don't quite know where it's going to stop. And, uh, you know, the, the conundrum for governments through the centuries. Let me just, let me just, um, or decades, I mean, let me just move to another area, which is at the moment, the fiscal space is being used primarily in the immediate crisis fighting. I mean, that, that's really the emphasis, try to avoid destruction of jobs, whatever it might be. Um, but at some stage, the fiscal space is going to have to be used to build back better, however you want to describe it, work on what the economy is going to look like post-COVID. Uh, and, you know, as we talk about in the EBRD and, and people talk about elsewhere, tilt to green, looking at sustainability. Um, when that shift occurs, Martin, how do you think government should use that, that fiscal space? Yes, this is, so let's treat it the way you've done as a normative point. Um, i just make one tiny comment on Willem. I agree with him completely. I've been one of the secular stagnation people. But I think governments haven't really tried to create inflation. And you know, and he, he knows better than I do, if they really try, they can do it. Uh, uh, well, we'll leave that aside. It, obviously, it's a big political evil. And I just put that in as a possibility to think about because it can't be ruled out. Now, what should governments be doing? I think they have... Some, if you're asking the normative question, they have some very, very big problems. Because as they come out of this, um, there are going to be constraints uh, on their spending um, that will be felt, strong pressure from treasuries. I can see this already coming in the UK, um, and I presume elsewhere, to go back to something like normal. Uh, whatever that may mean, and certainly not to continue to run enormous deficits. There will be limits to how far they can raise taxes politically. Um, that will be the case. So they will have to get back to really difficult questions. 
And it is very probable um, that we are going to create quite a significant amount of structural unemployment, it seems to me, at the end of this, which won't be very amenable to sort of standard stabilization policy tools. Um, maybe we will get, give up too quickly, but I think that's a, that is a real risk. But the point I would make is that economically, we will want to preserve, because we're moving into something new, the economy will be different a very flexible economy uh, with a rather different functioning in important respects and uh, uh, a big shift, I think, towards the green and so forth. So all that, is going back to Willem's original remarks, a lot of allocative efficiency or flexibility, when at the same time, the dominant focus on government of government will be looking after people. And marrying that, it can be done, but marrying that is complicated. It sort of pushes you in the flex security direction of the Danes, that sort of model, which is A, very expensive, and it requires very high levels of government capacity to do it, which on the whole, we don't have. So how are they going to do this? I don't know. They will be still helping people being very badly affected while trying to, to help the economies in a more different in a new direction, when the whole global framework for trade, trade policy, st control of state aid, all the efficiency things are going out the window. So what you want to do is clear, but how they're actually going to manage it will be very hard. It is possible to imagine sets of interventions by governments in intelligent public investment, support for R&D, support for labor market flexibility, active labor market policy, training, and so forth, which in the medium to long run will help economies work in this new environment. Uh, but they're all hard. Many countries have failed at them. And the big pressure will be to, to redistribute a hell of a lot of money and, uh, and tax a lot of this, the most successful parts of society as far high as you can. And I think governments are going to find this nightmarishly difficult to do well, uh, even if they want to. And as we've already seen pretty clearly, there's a very high probability we will elect governments that don't even want to. So even if we can see what the normative might look like, I think the likelihood is we're not going to see it very often. But that is the big challenge. And I think that is where we, people who write on economics, think about economics, you at EBRD, that's what we have to focus our attention on, how we do this balance uh, in this very difficult political situation so it isn't just all thrown away. Willem? Well, the scope for radical action differs massively, uh, even among the group of advanced economies. General government spending as a share of GDP in 2018, so pre-crisis, was 26% in Ireland, 26, 56 or 57, I think, in France, the higher, with the US somewhere in 38 and the UK 41 or 42%. Now, it's a lot easier, I would have said, uh, to um, engage in the kind of necessary um, equity supporting and growth promoting 
public sector investment in Ireland than it is in France. And um, so uh, we have to really recognize that one size will not fill all countries because the difference is, is, is staggering among them. Absolutely. Uh, emerging markets, of course, uh, virtually all tend to be um, uh, at, the, at the lower end, below Ireland even. Um, uh, getting additional public expenditure used efficiently is going to be a huge challenge. Beata mentioned earlier uh, the likely expansion of SOEs and, um, and then pointed out that there are real issues with the efficient operation of state-owned enterprises. And we're really going to have to uh, be creative uh, in the way that we incentivize um, SOEs to become something else than um, sort of uh, central planning type um, business for friends, connections, and relations. So I, um, uh, I, I, I see the need for um, a significant increase in most countries in uh, the scope of, uh, of government spending and taxation to support it. But I am um, very much aware of uh, long track records of inefficient operation of state-owned enterprises. So I, I'm not holding my breath, therefore, that uh, underlying growth potential will come uh, to the rescue of our fiscal sustainability uh, dilemmas. Beyonce. Indeed, fiscal capacity of states differs, uh, as well as capacity to administer spending. Um, but, you know, plans are being drawn up as we speak. They are being announced plans to spend a lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, is it wise to subsidize this hospi the hospitality sector? Or should we be focusing on giving money to sectors which have mm -hmm. high labor content and which are green, such as, you know, investment in public transport, retrofitting housing, and so on and so forth. Of course, you know, political economy matters, and it's not easy to make these choices politically. But there are also things that are easier to do. So think about nudging firms through conditionality. So firms are already receiving money. Why not ask them to do energy audits? Why not ask them to disclose their energy efficiency? And my final point is, you know, at least let us try to do no harm. If we are rescuing firms or sectors, let's make sure we are not creating green zombies or climate zombies, right? Firms that will be uh, unable to survive once carbon taxes increase. Okay, all right, thank you very much. Let's uh, go to some of our audience questions now because people have been posting questions and uh, some of them have been uh, sent on to me. So we can start with one uh, from William Franks uh, who says, 
What is your view of the role of modern economic theory in analyzing and supporting the deficits that arise as government address these crises? That's an interesting question, I suppose, because economic theory only gets you so far in this type of crisis, doesn't it, Martin? This is modern monetary theory. Well, modern, modern economic theory of any type, actually. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about modern yeah. monetary theory. Um, I think um, the questions we've been asking um, are mostly within the realm of reasonably well-established and understood like accounting and behavioral frameworks. So we're talking about fiscal policy, monetary policy, um, uh, the different dimensions of fiscal policy and its role. Uh, so understanding uh, this analytically is I think not impossible. There are two um, uh, features of it that are new um, from the point of view of experience and therefore knowing how it will work. The first obviously is that we are trying to manage the economy in the context of a pandemic whose duration, severity, extent, impact on social behavior, though a little clearer than it was six months ago, is still in many ways uncertain. And we have to stress that it's uh, profoundly important. And on in the management of which countries have diverged dramatically. And that has a, that first point leads to a second point, which I think we haven't discussed much, which I think is very, very important, um, which is again, practical thing, but profound. The world economy is being dismantled by this, pretty obviously. Um, but the world economy, the integration of the world, whatever the backlash, remains an enormous fact. We have, on most dimensions, the most integrated world economy, or many there has ever been. And that makes it very difficult for countries to recover if the world doesn't. Um, mm. And it makes it particularly difficult if countries are doing completely different things at the same time in managing the pandemic, in handling fiscal monetary policy, and their conditions are all very different. So, so a second, I think, huge question economically, economic analysis is, are we gonna have a world economy back and what's it gonna look like? And how different will it be from what we had before and what impact will that have on, you know, we're talking about, Beata rightly talking about the stranded assets associated with climate. I also think there's potentially huge stranded assets associated with the end of the old world economy, if there is an end of the old world economy, because people built the economy uh, are around that. And then the final area, which I think follows naturally from what Willem said, is we sort of know the direction policy will want to take when we discuss that. Um, but we also know that when governments try to do all that stuff all at the same time, they have a pretty solid history of messing it up because it's difficult. I was just thinking what Beata said, which I agree with is, you know, it would be very sensible if we had conditionality associated with our immense support of all the 
hundreds of thousands of companies that are being helped. But the truth is, and I have sort of have members of my family closely associated with British government at the moment, it's just too hard for government to handle all that. It can't be done. And though Britain is not a particularly effective developed country, it has a government of some kind that does some things, better shape probably than the US. And so uh, a huge question in terms of how we build back in a world in which government is more important is do we have governments able to do any of this stuff or how much of it? Where do we focus them? Um, because the one thing truly we've learned in our time is that if you ask governments to do everything, they end up with a making a mess of everything and that mm. doesn't make any sense. So I don't think it's economic analysis. I sort of think the framework for thinking about it has worked reasonably well and applied rather sensibly. But there are these huge uncertainties and huge challenges, um, which I think we just don't know enough about and we can't be confident we can handle. Uh, it's interesting. And the thought of government bandwidth is also interesting. Uh, Willem, actually, uh, uh, yes, it uh, is. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Sergey Guriev, who's also watching this, by the way, another former EBRD chief economist, mm -hmm. he thinks that this, this question perhaps might have been about modern monetary theory. Uh, but I don't know. What, what world do you think there is for modern monetary theory in all of this, then, uh, Willem? Oh, as long as um, no, uh, there's an infinite demand for uh, money at the um, effective lower bound, right? Uh, modern monetary theory, which basically says you can monetize deficits and mm. smile because there's no inflationary pressure, will hold. The question is, um, uh, uh, when, how fast do you exhaust uh, the slack that makes uh, for lack of inflationary pressures and also for um, exceedingly low real and uh, nominal interest rates. And um, uh, monetary theory, to the extent that it addresses this question about what do you do when inflationary pressures rise, but to the extent that it deals with it at all, waves of tax increases. That's fine. I mean, if that's what you're going to do. But there is a significant, I think, subcomponent in the modern monetary theory school that basically says you can do this forever. There are no constraints. The, you know, the monetization of deficits is a permanent, uh, painless way of um, attracting resources uh, into uh, the public sector and allowing them uh, to run uh, sustained deficits without the need to raise taxes or cut spending ever. And I think that is dangerous nonsense. Uh, and we have to uh, therefore beware of the fact that if it's true, as some of the projections do, that the US will end up with a cumulative deficit, fiscal deficit as a share of GDP of 25%, that we are likely to see inflationary consequences of that. Everything is possible. Well, it may be that we remain in the liquidity trap Japanese style for the next 20 years, regardless of um, the size of the deficits we throw at the markets. 
but I would consider that to be an extremely high risk proposition and not something I wish to recommend to any government. So yes, take advantage of the low real interest rates and of the liquidity trap while you can, but don't expect it to be a permanent feature of the economic environment. Absolutely. That's why inflation's a risk. So in defense of economics, right? Economics <laughs> disciplines our thinking. It doesn't have an answer to everything, but it provides many useful insights. And, you know, to come back to Martin's point, I don't think the issue is just do the governments have capability to implement the right policies? Do they have the bandwidth? I think the big question is, do they have the ability to sell the right policies to the electorate? And, you know, the devil is in the details and details are boring and the public has no patience for the details. And that creates a problem in the world where populists have undermined trust in experts. Because, you know, there is quality economics and there is what Willem called nonsense economics. And the problem is that the public cannot tell the difference. You know, it sounds much more appealing to print dollars in, to infinity without risking inflation than taxing people. You know, which policy is easier to sell the, to the public? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, I think that's going to be an interesting question. Uh, just another question we've had from Dan Berg. Uh, he says, is it time for countries to reconsider a universal basic income? For the large majority, this money would go right back into the economy. Martin. Um, I've been thinking about this recently, and I'm possibly changing my mind. So, um, into the sort of negative income tax territory, which actually Milton Friedman was very keen on. Um, my view used to be, and I think it probably still is, but I'm not sure, that in countries like, say, the UK, the US, where, as Willem has pointed out, we have a relatively low average tax rate um, relative to Scandinavia, Nordics, France. Um, and in that situation, and I, if you assume that sort of a constraint, then, um, and you have a large proportion of the population which are really sort of structurally poor, even if you push middle minimum wages up really quite high, uh, you have a big child poverty problem, the sort of very important pockets, huge of people who really need a lot of money, then you, uh, and you concentrate money upon them, um, then uh, if you've got a relatively low average tax rate, um, what we've found is if you do that, then um, uh, you impose a high marginal tax rate on the people who are the recipients of these benefits, but you do do quite a lot to redistribute income. And if you compare the US and UK, that's one of the really big difference. We do quite a lot of redistribution through these sorts of mechanisms which are naturally targeted. 
Now let's suppose if instead we go for a universal basic income, which is sufficiently high to ensure that all those people you care about are covered by it or close to being covered by it, because otherwise you're making a lot of poor people much worse off. Or you have the universal basic income in addition to these big top-ups. Well, if you do that, the average tax rate obviously has to go up. You've got much more churning. Lots of people receive universal basic income and are paying tax, of course. And so you get a lot of churning. Um, if you can sell the society on the churning, which basically evens out the marginal tax rates across the income distribution, in a sense, so nobody has 80% anymore, maybe everybody's close to 50% or whatever it will be, I won't go into the detail of it, then I think the universal basic income proposition becomes more attractive, it, particularly when work becomes very insecure, if you can't deal with that directly, you know, all these questions, let's just handle it through that. But I've tended to think for a long time that in a societies like ours, it's just going to create a situation in which a very large number of people who really do need the support will find radically reduced support and the universal basic really won't be enough to support anybody. Mm -hmm. That's stupid. So, the, so it's a big political economy question whether you want to go there and it's not trivial how you would do it. But maybe in France, that's the way they should go with their system. I, that I, I, uh, I don't know. I'm more sympathetic to it than I used to be for all sorts of reasons I can't go into, but I still have a really quite big skepticism about it in the Anglo-American sort of context. We need a laboratory to test it out on. Uh, Willem. Yeah, um, I'm very much on the same page about universal basic income or the negative income tax. One of the few things on which Tobin and Friedman agree. Indeed. They both liked it. Um, I think you can only do it because it would be jolly expensive if you set it at if you, the guaranteed minimum income is set at any decent level, you have to abolish many other forms of income support, especially in the advanced uh, Western countries, uh, uh, including the US, the UK, and France. Unemployment insurance, forms of health coverage, and all that. Um, so that makes it extremely difficult to introduce. Everybody will be cheering for the universal basic income, but everybody will be jeering at the uh, abolition uh, of um, other forms of uh, selective income support. I don't think you can have both. Right? And I uh, don't think that except in countries that already have extremely high levels of general government spending as a share of GDP, I'm talking uh, France and the Scandies here, Belgium, Denmark, um, uh, um, Austria, um, that um, it is not uh, yet uh, uh, politically feasible. You have to become a society, I think, quite a bit richer before we can uh, levy a negative income tax at a uh, decent um, and um, uh, 
acceptable lifestyle supporting level. So I say uh, yes in principle, in practice, uh, probably not yet, except possibly in countries with massive um, uh, public spending burdens, where if they're willing to shift resources from existing income support to negative income tax, they could uh, do um, a, a pretty effective job. That's, uh, thank you, Willem. That, that's a good point, Beata, isn't it, about uh, the difference between it in theory and the level it would have to be set at? Indeed, indeed. It also depends on how long the crisis will last. If we have a second and even a third wave, you know, what seems politically impossible may become politically feasible, right? So we will have lots of unemployment in, under such a scenario and young people will be disproportionately affected. And young people presumably find this idea much more appealing. And we know that they tend um, to vote less, less frequently, or be less engaged in political debates um, than older generations. So, you know, this mobilization of young voters um, may be something that would work in favor of the universal basic income. Okay. May I make one more point? Yeah, Philip. It's, um, I think, any hope for universal basic income or even uh, progressive wealth and income taxes relies one on the closure of tax havens and B, beyond that, on tax cooperation between nation states, so that we not engage in aggressive tax competition uh, that undermines the tax basis. That's going to be very difficult in an um, economic and political climate where there is a resurgence of economic nationalism. We need uh, to hold each other's hand uh, in terms of the tax base that needs to be defended in each country, not punch each other in the nose the way we uh, tend to do uh, and were doing at the end of uh, the era, the pre-COVID era, when, for instance, even attempts at, uh, at green taxes uh, were severely constrained uh, by um, consideration of national tax competition. Well, that uh, brings us very neatly to two questions, actually, which I'm going to read out on this question of taxation. So one is from Jens Lundsgaard. He says, in Denmark, many uh, governments found that cutting taxes was more competitive. Even if countries like the UK may now turn to higher taxes, they might be constrained by current disintegration of yeah. multilateralism, Brexit, etc. Uh, aren't you being too optimistic about how far or how high tech and wealth taxes can go? That's a question from Jan, uh, Janis Lundsgaard. And uh, we had an interesting question as well from James Rosenstein. It's similar. He says, in the US, there's huge resistance to higher taxes. One argument is it limits growth. Martin. Well, I would... Um, so, I have just two points. Willem has already made the point, which I think is a fascinating one, which I made at length in, in the book I wrote on globalization, which was published almost 20 years ago. The fascinating thing about the developed world, and we can now include a number of East Asian countries in that group, 
is the variation in the, the tax burden across them. Um, and Willem described this, roughly speaking, it's two to one from on the extremes. I think if you, it's rather difficult to understand Singapore, so I'll put that to one side. But South Korea is very low too. I mean, it's a big country, a real economy. And what is interesting is that happened in a globalizing world with uh, theoretically very high levels of tax competition. It wasn't the case, I wrote, that was the point I made, that the countries that had the highest average tax rates, which include obviously high tax rates on relatively prosperous people and experienced massive capital flight, they didn't. Uh, um, obviously some of their wealthier citizens went to live in Monte Carlo, yeah, but Sweden and Denmark and Sweden was extreme, so it was cut. But countries like France and Denmark and uh, uh, other Nordic countries, the Netherlands too, it's quite high, um, continue to tax. So I think we should not exaggerate tax competition. Some things are much more mobile than others, but I actually think nations have a fair chance of taxing even quite a bit of tax mobile capital. Mobile production is more difficult. And that's why green taxes are so difficult. So you, so you have to consider different taxes and where, it, where you, you would end up taxing. It is clear that when you look at it, the, these very big divergence reflect big divergence in taxing relatively immobile factors of production, of which, of course, the most important in practice is labor, is labor. But of course it includes very high taxes on relatively skilled labor and relatively skilled labor is pretty sticky because on the whole, not huge, but on the whole, if you're living in a prosperous country, this is your country, this is where you want your children to grow up, this is where you want your family to live. You're not gonna leave to go to somewhere else because it's got a lower tax rate, or at least that's the evidence. So that's the first point, there's much, more stickiness in the tax base, it seems to me, just looking at the history and the evidence of movement of people and capital and people suppose. And the second point, which is what there was said about the, 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 the question about the US, is the political economy of taxation across states varies dramatically. And that's what supports these differences in tax burdens. And that uh, I mean, now my own view is that the idea that if we have higher taxes, it will kill growth is uh, not well supported by the evidence. And, but it doesn't matter whether it's well supported or not the evidence. It's a line that sells in America. And anyway, the taxed income in America is ours. And we don't want to give it to the government because they're all crooks, always. And so you can't raise taxes in America, end of story. That's the story that's been sold. And it's what people believe. And obviously the political economy of taxation in actually Denmark is very, very different. Will that change? I don't know. In, in the US, if it won't change, my guess is in the end, this will end up with inflation. Coming back to our earlier point, countries that cannot raise taxes when they have enormous debt and deficit problems, inflate, they default. And that's the way we did it in the 70s and we'll do it again. Yes, I feel history repeating itself. Uh, Willem, taxation. Well, I think um, 
that uh, in addition to the mobility obstacles, uh, which are different for corporates than for um, uh, individuals, right, uh, the um, political obstacles to higher taxation are uh, likely to be the binding constraint uh, in uh, some major countries, as Martin pointed out, in the US. Taxation is theft, right, fundamentally. That's the ideology. Okay. And um, a certain amount of limited theft you can tolerate because uh, good causes uh, that everybody recognizes that good causes are served by it, but it sets a definite constraint. I um, uh, would hope and at least at the European level, uh, at the EU level, um, we are going to move forward to uh, uh, a more um, determined form of environmental taxation, including um, uh, climate taxes. Uh, but um, my uh, expectations of uh, material increases in income taxes and wealth taxes are very country specific. Uh, I agree with Martin that um, some tax bases are surprisingly immobile, but um, uh, even there for them, uh, the highest marginal rates are limited. It wasn't always this way, right? In the immediate aftermath of World War II, the US had higher marginal tax rates um, than even the UK. They were almost 100%. Right? It is the, the US as a low tax um, country is a post-World War II uh, phenomenon. So um, if the COVID shock uh, turns out to be not a one-off um, event, but a repeated sequence of um, both um, uh, uh, disease cycles and responsive economic cycles to it, uh, both private response and public response, uh, then um, I think we may well get uh, a political acceptance of a significantly higher level of, of, of taxation, even in the US. They were there once before. We should not uh, uh, quite forget that by just listening at um, uh, um, noises that surround the current incumbent president. So I'm, uh, I'm cautious um, about the ability to raise taxes in countries like the uh, US and the UK, but the worse uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, and the longer lasting it is, the greater the chances are that some material changes will be made, in my view.
Beata? I'm less optimistic than Willem about the US changing. I actually would expect divergence between the US and Europe in terms of taxes, in terms of regulation, labor regulation, for instance, um, approach to climate change, so further divergence. In Europe, I think we will see higher taxes, but the ability to tax will depend on convincing the public that taxes are fair. And fair taxes means going after loopholes available to corporations, going after tech companies, and going after tax havens. Um, and we already see some interest there. Um, I think Denmark and, some, and France refuse to give state aid to companies that are headquartered in tax havens or have subsidiaries there. So I expect this will go further. Of course, it will be hard to implement in practice, but you know, I think Europe is large enough to put pressure on some tax havens. All right, thank you very one much. Small additional point, which mm. is sort of floating around here. I'm not completely sure of this, but because I can make the other argument, but it is possible, perhaps even probable, that the already completely obvious divergence, social, politically, and to some degree in terms of economic policy between Europe and the uh, United States will um, continue. And of course, if Mr. Trump is reelected, that's absolutely yeah. certain. But even if Mr. Biden is elected, I think the Beata caught it very well. There's a different sentiment, majority sentiment in Europe. And as in most respects is the case, though not all, Britain, though it doesn't like to understand this or believe it, is more European than American. Yes. Uh, okay, let's uh, just, we need to sum up because we are pretty much out of time. But I wonder if I could ask you all, just for one or two sentences, how would you sum up then the future social contract between governments and peoples? I mean, is it uh, pay us enough tax and we'll look after you? What is it? How would you sum it up in just a couple of sentences? Uh, Martin? It's going to be very contested. It's going to be the, th the, the center of politics. The dominant thrust, however, I think, will be to look more to government um, while at the same time, government is profoundly resource constrained. And it's going to make this really a hard period in terms of creating and sustaining the political and economic stability we need. Well, the new social contract will, as Mark put out, have a greater role of government, um, uh, reflected partly in um, a higher tax burden that is not just there to service the sort of cyclical expansion of public debt, but to uh, pay for a uh, permanently higher uh, level of general government expenditures on health, education, uh, welfare, uh, and other um, socially important expenditure items like that. Um, this will not be uniform across countries. I am uh, slightly less pessimistic than 
my fellow panelists about the scope for change in the U.S. I mean, as I said, I take when I take the longer view, uh, um, uh, the notion that they won't pay taxes uh, relative to Europe just doesn't hold water. Um, and um, uh, I'm uh, convinced also that uh, in those countries where a deal on a permanently higher tax burden cannot be reached, we will see uh, an inflationary splurge that will reduce uh, the tax burden, the, sorry, the debt burden uh, to more sustainable levels. Um, and um, the countries that are the most likely candidates there are the ones where the ability of the government to raise uh, to raise taxes is lowest. It may include the U.S., um, but uh, I think there are other uh, European countries, and certainly uh, emerging markets and poor developing countries, where this is a certainty. Uh, the new social contract in many uh, emerging markets will look surprisingly like the old social contract. I see governments becoming more generous insurers, insuring the public against pandemics, against climate, climate change, against economic hardship, but the premium is going up. <laughs> okay, that's a good place to end, uh, apart from the thought of paying the uh, going up premium. Thank you very much indeed to the three of you. I thought it was a, a really fascinating discussion. So thank you very much, Martin, Beata, Willem, a really, really interesting uh, debate. Uh, this conversation that was part of our coronavirus special series, uh, we'll be posting a podcast of today's session later. You can download it on iTunes uh, and review it and rate it, of course. We like that because it helps others to find it. Uh, but a big thank you again to our panelists. Big thank you to our audience as well. Uh, until next time, look after yourself. Goodbye. You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD.